Today we're going to be talking about communism and more specifically the anti-communist impulse that was so important uh, in the United States uh, in the years after World War II. Uh, when we left off last time, meaning before our, uh, our midterm, uh, I spoke about the paradox uh, of the decade following World War II in the United States. Now, I think I may have already referred at some point during this course to Bill Clinton's famous 1992 campaign slogan. Remember that? Or maybe I didn't mention it. What was his famous 1992? Uh, it's, the it's the economy, stupid. That, you know, that supposedly on a little sign was hanging up in front of the workstation of virtually every one of his campaign workers. It's the economy, stupid. That's one of the hallmark lines of the 1990s, along with uh, 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 other, other lines like, show me the money. Remember that from the 1990s? And uh, one of my favorites, uh, no soup for you. Okay? So those are the great sayings of the 1990s, the great lines of the 1990s. But one of them was, it's the economy, stupid. And for Americans in the 1990s, to talk about them just very briefly, it appears to have been the economy that motivated them most, and specifically the fact of a healthy economy that seems to have excused all other ills. Most Americans, for example, while uh, distressed and disturbed by President Clinton's, uh, 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 shall we say, personal uh, 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 peccadilloes, uh, nonetheless uh, did not want him removed from office, in large part because the economy was doing as well as it was in the 1990s with unemployment uh, low and wages high uh, and the economy continuing to expand. Uh, this, for the majority of Americans in the 1990s, was enough. It was the economy, stupid. But between 1945 and 1955 in America, the economy was not enough. Unemployment was low then, too. And national income had tripled. The average American's purchasing power, that is, adjusted for the rises in the cost of living, rose 25% between 1945 and 1955. And, as I mentioned earlier, a new middle class was forming in the United States. As evidence of this, consider that the greatest gains in the booming economy of the decade after World War II in America were made not by the very rich, which is often the case, not this time, top fifth of income earners. They were not making the biggest gains, but the middle 60% of America, the middle three-fifths, the middle class. This group's average real income rose by almost 80% during this time, and that's a lot. Even poorer Americans did better between 1945 and 1955. The income of even the lowest fifth of the American population rose almost 70%. So, if the 1990s are any guide, the years between 1945 and 1955 in America should have been relatively carefree ones for the American people. But, as we know, they were not. As I said at the end of my last lecture, this period was one of angst amid affluence. And this angst, of course, centered around uh, what almost all Americans, whatever their political persuasion, considered the great moral issue of their time, the issue of communism, both at home and abroad, and specifically what to do about it. 
Now, obviously, Americans had been worried about communism for a long time before 1945. During the Great Depression, for example, many on the far right who hated Franklin Roosevelt were in the habit of calling Roosevelt a communist for his expansion of the power of the federal government. But the decade after the end of the Second World War, from 1945 to 1955, was different. Different in the intensity and the degree of the angst in America about communism. For the first time after 1945, most Americans listed communism, and not, as before 1945, economic problems or winning the war against fascism and the Nazis, as the number one problem facing the nation. After 1945, it's communism. So, before we talk about communism, and specifically anti-communism, we should ask the question, why then? Why was this so important after 1945? Why, between 1945 and 1955, did Americans become so concerned with communism, even obsessed with communism, to the exclusion of almost everything else, even in the face of a booming economy? Why did anti-communism become the center of the American universe during this time specifically? And it's always a good historical question to ask. Why then? Why at this particular time did this particular impulse occur? This particular event occur? It's always a good historical question. So why then, of all times, for this extreme obsession with communism? Well, there are some obvious answers and not some not-so-obvious answers. The more obvious answers, uh, of course, deal with international politics, with what is going on in the world. As I mentioned last time, in 1945, the Soviet Union was America's only possible rival in terms of military and economic and even cultural strength. And whoever you wish to blame the Cold War on, it was clear that the USSR was a powerful force to be reckoned with. By the latter part of the 1940s, the Soviet Union controlled Eastern Europe, as we described last time, as well as East Germany, and had surrounded the American-controlled section of Berlin, which was in East Germany, with the intent of forcing it into the Soviet orbit as well. Moreover, the Soviets had exploded an atomic bomb by 1949. They were sponsoring rebel insurgencies in Greece and in Turkey. And legal communist parties in France and Italy and West Germany that threatened to bring Marxism to those countries by democratic means, by electoral means. By 1949 as well, communism had triumphed in China. Uh, a tremendous psychological blow to the American people, uh, since many Americans had adopted what we could call a paternalistic attitude towards China and its people, uh, viewing them as docile and weak and in need of American uh, guidance. Certainly uh, during the World War II years, when uh, Japan uh, invaded and occupied and fought in large parts of China, uh, this impulse was very, very prevalent uh, in, the, uh, in the United States. Uh, who has ever heard of an uh, author by the name of Pearl Buck, B-U-C-K? Okay. Who's read The Good Earth? 
You've probably read The Good Earth if you, if you heard of Pearl Buck. Well, uh, that's the kind of attitude that most people had in America towards the Chinese. Can, can, uh, uh, those of you who've read the book, would you, would, you, could, would you agree that it's more or less a paternalistic attitude towards, towards the Chinese, that they're sort of uh, weak and docile people, but good people, uh, 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 you know, uh, deserving of American attention? Well... That psychological uh, attitude was overthrown completely in 1949 when the communist Chinese uh, under Mao Zedong took over the country. Uh, communist China viewed America as the capitalist devil and certainly did not seek any help uh, uh, from them. Of course, also exacerbating the international situation was the war in Korea uh, uh, between 1950 and 1953 that we talked about last time, with its seesaw military nature and its inconclusive ending. Yet another reason for Americans to feel uh, uneasy or even paranoid about communism. Internationally, to most, if not many Americans during this time, communism appeared to be monolithic, aggressively expansionist, and, most ominously of all, victorious. There was no escaping the feeling in America during this period between 1945 and 1955 that communism, that Marxism, was on the march, and capitalist democracy was on the defensive. And Soviet and Chinese, or communist Chinese propagandists, made little attempt to hide their intentions to destroy, to, to destroy capitalism throughout the world. Now, much of this was mere propaganda, uh, rhetorical chest-thumping or trash-talking in today's uh, parlance. But to many Americans, what was coming out of China and the Soviet Union was frighteningly real, and it made them very afraid. If somebody says that they're going to destroy you, I don't think it is unreasonable to take them at their word. And you can add to this fear of communism internationally the fear of nuclear destruction generally, which of course was related to communism and contributed to the American obsession with communism. The explosion of the atomic bombs at uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August 1945 unleashed a number of conflicting emotions in the American people. There was pride, of course, proud, proud, uh, pride that uh, we had been first, America had been first to get nuclear weapons, and also a great feeling of power. These weapons, of course, had ended World War II. But there was also something else, a feeling of insecurity, a feeling that uh, Americans could have their own lives ended instantaneously and horribly by nuclear weapons. They had seen the photographs uh, from Hiroshima, the gruesome photographs. And thus, even before the Soviet Union developed its own atomic bomb in 1949, Americans approached the entire subject of nuclear arms with great trepidation. And because of the new possibility of a uh, nuclear Armageddon, a total nuclear destruction, the stakes in the battle with communism were all that much higher. And so nuclear weapons contributed to the American obsession with communism, even though they technically had nothing to do with communism itself. Now, 
there were also domestic explanations for the American concern with communism uh, between 1945 and 1955. Uh, again, not all of which related directly to communism itself. First, I think that arguing over communism was a way for the American people to argue over the New Deal and the New Deal's ongoing legacy. Now, we saw this the last time when I described the battle over definitions of freedom and equality in post-war America that were uh, compromised out between liberals and conservatives, different views of what freedom and equality meant, compromised out through Harry Truman's fair deal uh, and government fiscal and monetary controls, but not direct controls uh, over the economy. Now, in domestic politics in America, communism stood for the far left wing of the old New Deal coalition, the old Franklin Roosevelt coalition. After all, American a communists supported Roosevelt throughout much of the New Deal, although they, of course, felt that he did not go far enough. And debating the legacy of the New Deal was also a way for Americans to talk about communism. Now, many Americans, especially those in the Republican Party, and specifically the small-town Midwestern branch of the Republican Party, not the Eastern, uh, uh, the Eastern urbanites or Eastern businessmen, but the small-town Midwestern wing of the Republicans, wanted to discredit the entire New Deal. And the most effective way to do this after 1945 was to associate the New Deal with Marxism or with communism. And in addition, the political climate in the United States as a whole after 1945 shifted to the right, shifted to be more conservative. As I told you last time, during World War II, government and business were no longer enemies or rivals, as they had been throughout much of the 1930s, but partners now in the developing military-industrial complex. Now, American business, to a large degree, had won World War II. And the free enterprise system that Marxism sought to uh, destroy was apparently working in America. So if there was ever a time for Americans to turn violently against communism, it was probably right after World War II. So that sort of also goes to the question of why then. And there were, I think, also cultural reasons for the fervent anti-communism of the post-World War II years. The war and the years after it, uh, as I said earlier, were producing a new middle class in America. Uh, 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 tremendous growth economically in that class after the war. These were people whose parents had been poor and who themselves had been poor. But they, now they were people who had things. Homes of their own. Perhaps in the new suburbs. Appliances. Cars. Material goods. Well beyond their wildest dreams. But this new material status, instead of fostering a feeling of satisfaction, uh, even complacency, may instead have, almost paradoxically, made them insecure, made them feel that their new success was somehow not real and could slip away from them in an instant. Remember the stories I told when I talked about the Depression, about the psychological effects of the Great Depression. Now, sociologists have given this insecurity of the newly arrived a name. They call it 
status anxiety, status anxiety. And many in the new American middle class, many of whom were Democrats, incidentally, especially those who were Catholics and viewed communism as godless and anti-religious. And note that virtually every Eastern European nation that the Soviet Union took over uh, uh, after World War II, from Poland on down, had a very large Catholic population. These new middle-class Americans projected their anxieties about losing their places in American society onto the threat that they perceived communism posing to the American way of life. The same American way of life they were now enjoying for the first time and were afraid would be taken away from them. And if we examine this impulse even more closely, we can see that although it was about communism or about anti-communism on the surface, beneath the surface it may have been about something else as it so often is in history. Sometimes you, uh, uh, you, can, you can analogize history to a family argument often, arguments among Americans, to a family argument. And maybe you've had these arguments with your own family where you're arguing you think about one thing, a surface thing, but you're really arguing about something deeper. Often Americans are like that, or people are like that in history. You think that they're arguing about one thing, but they're really arguing about something deeper. And I think that is the case here. Because this new middle class in America was angry at communism, it was true. But in keeping with its status anxiety, it was also angry at other people who were not themselves communists. This is beneath the surface. The American middle class, or new American middle class, were angry at well-off Eastern establishment white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, what we call WASPs. People like Harry Truman's Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, a very elegant, preppy man. Or FDR's close advisor at the Yalta Conference, Alger Hiss, about whom I'll have more to say a little later. These people were Ivy Leaguers. The average middle-class American was not. These people had connections. The average middle-class American had none. Things seemed to come easy to these WASP establishment types, while average middle-class Americans had to struggle. Now, much of the anti-communist impulse in America after World War II, and much of the support for Joe McCarthy, who I'll also have more to say about, uh, say about later, came from middle-class Americans who resented this ruling elite of the United States, or those they perceived as constituting a ruling elite, who, in their view, had been soft on communism, who had, like Atchison, Dean Atchison, uh, Harry Truman's Secretary of State, lost China to the communists, or who, like Alger Hiss, had induced and convinced Franklin D. Roosevelt to give up Poland, or control of Poland, to Stalin at Yalta. But also, who, more to the point, these wasps looked down their noses at the average middle-class American. These high-born, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants had rejected them for jobs, had rejected them for school admissions, and even up until World War II, questioned whether they were in fact even true Americans. Remember I talked about Catholics and Jews, non-Protestants, being marginalized in the United States uh, in the years uh, before uh, World War II. 
Well, now, after World War II, the shoe was on the other foot. And the newly arrived American middle class, one generation removed from poverty, were questioning whether these Eastern WASP elites were the true Americans. And it was through anti-communism that they could do this. So, in this sense, I think, anti-communism was a vehicle through which the new ethnic, meaning non-Protestant, middle class in America became true Americans after World War II. Through anti-communism, they could express their status anxiety, their resentments of the Eastern WASP establishment, and express their anti-elitism. This was an explosive mixture of class and cultural anger that fueled the fires of the anti-communist impulse in America for a decade and made the career, to a large extent, of Joe McCarthy. I'll have more to say about him later. So, we see that anti-communism in America after the Second World War had its roots in anxieties over the international situation involving the Soviet Union and China, anxieties over nuclear uh, 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 nuclear, uh, nuclear war or the possibility of nuclear destruction, anxieties over the legacy of the New Deal, and also the status anxieties and insecurities of the new middle class. And anti-communism was an expression of these anxieties, uh, some of which, ironically, were not related to communism itself. Sometimes it's about, you say it's about one thing, but it's about another. How then did the anti-communist impulse play out in America's domestic political arena after uh, World War II? Well, Harry Truman, who would later be attacked by Republicans for being soft on communism, started the government's war, the federal government's war on communism, in 1947 by uh, by instituting loyalty checks on federal employees, people who worked for the federal government. And through his Truman Doctrine, which we talked about uh, last time, uh, 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 the Truman Doctrine, while technically aimed at communism abroad, remember he was talking about Greece, really talking about the rest of the world, it also had domestic repercussions. Since to get the Republican-dominated Congress in 1947 to appropriate the money that he wanted to appropriate for Greece, this is a very you know, spending-conscious Republican Congress, uh, Truman, in his own words, had to scare the hell out of the American people about communism. So Truman's speech, his Truman Doctrine speech to Congress in 1947, was replete with apocalyptic language about the communist threat Language his audience, both in Congress and among the uh, American people generally, took very seriously. And suddenly, Truman was engaged in an escalating game of one-upsmanship with a Republican opposition determined to outdo him in anti-communist fervor, which pulled Truman along almost involuntarily to places he did not wish to go. Now later, after his presidency ended, Truman uh, would express regret that he had spoken as strongly and as harshly as he had in his Truman Doctrine speech. He had, he ruefully admitted later, opened a Pandora's box that could not be closed under the pressures of getting a fiscally conservative Republican Congress to spend a lot of money on Greece. Once the 
Pandora's box of domestic anti-communism was open, there was no telling where it would go. Now, one place it did go was into the labor movement, where communists had played a major role in the CIO's organizing campaigns of the 1930s and early 1940s. Now, the late 1940s were a very good time for anti-New Dealers, especially those in the Republican uh, Party, uh, uh, to settle scores with a labor movement that they viewed as contributing to the decline of the free market system through government overregulation of the economy. And these Republican and also Southern Democrat uh, political uh, allies of big business were further angered by the wave of strikes that these labor unions led in 1946, the largest number in American history. Note that there are always or often a large number of labor strikes right after the end of a war. We saw that being the case after World War I. These strikes included, most terrifyingly to the pro-free enterprise Republicans, a series of general strikes in some cities, including Oakland, California, where all workers in the city stopped working. A number of cities uh, uh, had this, conjuring up uh, the image of some sort of Marxist-style class war in the United States. Now, this situation, Republicans decided in 1947, must come to an end. And they used anti-communism as a wedge against the American labor movement. The Taft-Hartley Act, passed by Congressional Republicans and Southern Democrats over President Truman's veto in 1947, forced union leaders to sign affidavits attesting that they did not belong to communist or communist-affiliated organizations. And perhaps more to the point of its anti-labor goals, the Taft-Hartley Act prohibited the so-called union shop under which only union members could be hired for a job. In other words, to, to get hired, you had to join the union. This was now prohibited. Uh, the Taft-Hartley uh, Strike uh, Act also made strikes against a sort of vaguely defined national interest illegal. Now, under Republican pressure from the Taft-Hartley Act and pressure generally, the CIO moved to purge its ranks, not only of communists, but of those suspected of being friendly to communists uh, in what would come to be called guilt by association, a device used by hysterical anti-communists like Joe McCarthy to smear the reputations of liberals and non-communists who were on the left. If some of his political associates are communists, this reasoning went, then he is a communist himself, or at least soft on communism. And the CIO did expel about one-third of its members uh, uh, in this way, through these purges in the late 1940s, both for being communist and also for associating with communists. Now, the Pandora's box that Truman had opened of anti-communism also reached the film industry, where, in 1947, the House Un-American Activities Committee, or HUAC, H-U-A-C, an arm of the House of Representatives with general investigatory powers, as its title uh, implied, uh, HUAC launched an investigation of communism in Hollywood. Uh, a hotbed of pro-communist activity, Republicans uh, claimed. And 
Here, HUAC did unearth a group of writers and directors and producers who were or had been members of the Communist Party, the so-called Hollywood Ten. Called before the House Un-American Activities Committee, uh, the Hollywood Ten refused to testify as to their uh, political activities or the activities of those of others, uh, citing their First Amendment protections of speech, freedom of speech. They were jailed for contempt of Congress. Martyrs, in their own minds, and in the minds of their uh, supporters, to the cause of free speech and civil liberties. Although it should be noted that none of the Communist Party members of the Hollywood Ten supported civil liberties or free speech for anyone else or any of their opponents, and were hardly the paragons of democracy and fair play that they purported to be. Most of the Hollywood Ten, in fact, were such slavish supporters of the Soviet Union that they actually opposed going to war with the Nazis between 1939 and 1941, the years of the Soviet-Germany anti-aggression pact. In other words, whatever the Soviet Union did, they would do or support, even if it meant making a deal with Adolf Hitler, uh, allying with some of the most rabidly right-wing and anti-Semitic forces in the United States in order to do this. So the Hollywood 10 case, I think, was both an example then of anti-communist sentiment gone completely awry. I mean, the Hollywood Ten were justified in citing their freedom of speech rights under the Constitution, but also the dilemmas in a democracy of protecting the civil liberties of those who, if they attained power themselves, would almost unquestionably destroy civil liberties. Now, during this period, the courts seem to be inclined to solve this dilemma by sanctioning the punishment of mere political views as crimes. For example, the 1951 Dennis v. United States case, which upheld the conviction of a group of Communist Party officials under a law making membership in the Communist Party uh, a crime. In other words, not even doing anything, just belonging to the Communist Party was made a crime. The courts obviously brushed aside free speech arguments in this case on national security grounds. The national security and anti-communist impulse also reached into our immigration policy during this time uh, with the passage of the McCarran-Walter Act of 1952. That's M small c, capital C, A-R-R-A-N, uh, uh, a Walter Act of 1952, which barred the entry of suspected security risks uh, 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 into the country. Now, like the Taft-Hartley Act, the McCarran-Walter Act uh, had an ulterior motive, here to restrict immigration from Eastern and Southern Europe, uh, uh, much like the Johnson-Reed Act of 1924. And congressional anti-communist sentiment even went so far as to provide for special camps for subversives Camps that, to be fair, were never built or used uh, in the McCarran Internal Security Act of 1950. Now, incidentally, the name McCarran keeps popping up here. Uh, uh, this is Senator Pat McCarran of Nevada, uh, whose main claim to fame uh, uh, today uh, is... Does anybody know what his claim to fame today is? Who's been to Las Vegas? None of you have been to Vegas? Oh, man. A couple of you have gone to Vegas. Okay, you've flown in, I assume. Okay, the name of the airport? 
McCarran International. So that's the first and last thing you see when you fly into Las Vegas. Uh, I, I, I think Las Vegas is a fascinating place. For an American historian, just aside from the, the stuff you can do there, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. But uh, uh, just from the standpoint of an American historian, I find that place absolutely fascinating as an expression. I call it the circus funhouse mirror of American culture. It's a very, very interesting place. But in, in any case, that's, uh, uh, that's, that's Pat McCarran's fame now. McCarran International Airport in Los Vegas. And perhaps the most enduring legacy of the government's anti-communist campaign of the post-World War II years isn't really so much these laws themselves, you know, uh, uh, you know the McCarran-Walter Act, uh, uh, you know, the McCarran uh, Internal Security Act, uh, uh, because most of these laws were either held unconstitutional eventually or repealed. Uh, but its tradition, its legacy of expanded executive power, uh, a trend which, as we've seen, was begun rather innocently by Franklin D. Roosevelt uh, during the New Deal, but which was expanded uh, by the post-war anti-communist uh, atmosphere into what we would now call, and do now call, a national security state featuring a powerful FBI, a powerful CIA, uh, 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 and, 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 a, and a powerful Office of Homeland Security, uh, reporting to, and sometimes doing the dirty work for, uh, a powerful president, sometimes a president with something to hide, like LBJ during the Vietnam War or Nixon during Watergate, as we'll discuss later in this course. And if we worry today about a national state that spies on its citizens or harasses its citizens or a chief executive who does so. We have the years after World War II and the anti-communist crusade in American government to blame for this. If you want to know where it started, it started during this time. Uh, 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 and as is the case so often in American history, in attempting to solve one problem, anti-communism, we created another problem threat to civil liberties, which was just as bad with even more longevity. That's another rule of history that's general, the law of unintended consequences. So, having said all this, was the anti-communist impulse in the United States after 1945 just a pathology? Was it just hysterical and irrational, as we'll debate on Monday? Was there any uh, validity to it? Well, with some major qualifications, which I'll get to a little later when I talk about Joe McCarthy and McCarthyism, I think that there was some validity to the anti-communist impulse in post-war America. And to illustrate this point, let me turn to a man whose book you read a portion of for today, a man named Whitaker Chambers. Now, Whitaker Chambers was an unlikely candidate for anti-communist heroism because he spent a considerable period of his life as a communist himself. And, moreover, in the 1930s, he was a spy for the communists. He was a spy for the Soviet Union, charged with recruiting high-level American government officials to give him sensitive materials which he would then pass on to Soviet agents. Now, one such person Whitaker Chambers dealt with during this time was a man named Alger Hiss, who served in a number of important positions in the State Department and later was a high-ranking delegate to the conference that founded the United Nations 
as well as serving as one of Franklin Roosevelt's closest advisors during the Yalta Conference with Stalin in 1945, in February 1945, that we've had so much to, to talk about. So obviously Hiss is an important guy. Now, Hiss gave Chambers a number of classified documents during the 1930s, which Chambers then passed on to the Soviets. But not before he made microfilm copies for himself for self-protection. Chambers is nothing if not paranoid. Chambers hid these microfilm documents on his farm in Westminster, Maryland, in, of all things, a hollowed-out pumpkin in his fields. They later became known as the Pumpkin Papers. Now, in the late 1930s, Whitaker Chambers underwent an extreme crisis of confidence in communism, brought on primarily by his discovery of the infamous Stalinist purges of that time, during which this dictator, Joseph Stalin, whose only rival was Adolf Hitler in his lust for blood, killed somewhere between five to seven million of his own people, probably never know the exact number, making Stalin, along with Hitler and Mao Zedong, the greatest mass murderer of all time. Now, in the face of this, Whitaker Chambers underwent a religious conversion, quit the Communist Party, and spent the next 10 years denouncing communism publicly. And we get something of the flavor of these denunciations and the passages uh, uh, from his book, Witness, that we uh, read for today. The world's problems, his, uh, sorry, not his, Chambers argues, were spiritual problems and not, as Marxists argued, economic problems or material problems. And Chambers considered that Marxist materialism, its obsession with economics, follow the money, everything revolves around money and class relations. Uh, uh, Materialism in which man became his own god, so to speak. Chambers viewed that as a perversion. Only through faith and not materialism, Chambers began to argue, could man find salvation. Now, Chambers' views attracted very little attention during the 1940s. He was a book reviewer for Time magazine, and his editors usually reined in his anti-communist statements, edited them out. But in 1948, Chambers was called before the House on American Activities Committee, and in the course of testifying to his own espionage uh, activities, he also testified that Alger Hiss was a Soviet spy. Well, the outcry over this could not have been greater, in large part because of who Hiss, who denied even knowing Whitaker Chambers, never mind passing on State Department secrets to him, who Hiss was and who Whitaker Chambers was not. Alger Hiss was the Eastern Wasp establishment personified, a tall, elegant, prep school trained man who had been a brilliant student at Harvard Law School a great success as a Wall Street lawyer, uh, before joining the State Department and an advisor to uh, FDR at Yalta and also at the founding of the UN. Now, by 1948, Alger Hiss was the head of the prestigious Carnegie Endowment for World Peace. Hiss had impeccable, perfect credentials. Dean Acheson, the Secretary of State, Harry Truman's Secretary of State, members of the Supreme Court, they all swore by Alger Hiss. It seemed impossible that such a man could be a Soviet spy. Chambers, on the other hand, was a sweaty, 
overweight, often overwrought man. You could tell that uh, from sometimes his rather purplish writing. He was a college dropout, certainly not a member of any elite or any establishment, who had few powerful people vouching for him, and many in the media, in the government, and in the intellectual community just didn't believe what Whitaker Chambers had to say. The whole idea of stolen State Department papers in a, in a hollowed-out pumpkin was, was ludicrous. It was almost a joke. And Alger Hiss, despite his conviction for perjury in 1949, he was found to have lied in denying that he knew Chambers. He did know Chambers. Uh, he was not tried for espionage because the statute of limitations for espionage had expired. Uh, Hiss did much better in the court of public opinion. And it became an article of faith in most educated circles in the United States, and certainly most establishment circles, uh, for the next 40 years. His died in the early 1990s, still proclaiming his innocence, that Hiss was the victim of anti-communist hysteria and McCarthyite smear tactics, and that Chambers was an obsessive at best, and an irresponsible liar at worst. The point man for an emerging, emerging anti-communist, quasi-fascist impulse. And it's true. Whitaker Chambers was obsessed, and was an exaggerator, and was paranoid. But, and this makes the question of anti-communism in post-war America infinitely more complicated, Whitaker Chambers told the truth. Alger Hiss was a Soviet spy, and remained so from the 1930s until well into the 1940s, and may even have been spying for the Soviet Union at the very time he was advising FDR at Yalta in 1945. In 1994, the KGB, we all know what the KGB is, right? You know, the Russian secret, secret police, KGB spies. Uh, uh, the KGB's own files, which are known as the Venona Papers, V-E-N-O-N-A, identified Alger Hiss as a Soviet agent. So we could hear it basically from the Soviets themselves. So Whitaker Chambers told the truth and paid for it, as he knew he would at the time, with public ridicule, with the loss of his career. He left Time magazine and died a marginalized figure in the early 1960s. But Whitaker Chambers told the truth. And in so doing, he forces us, as historians, to view anti-communism as something more than uh, just a mere pathology, uh, a, a historical aberration, but as an impulse with at least some grounding in reality and as such, a part of the American historical tradition. Soviet spies did operate in America, sometimes, like Alger Hiss, at the highest levels of government and politics, and anti-communism, principled anti-communism, as Whitaker Chambers and many others uh, showed, was far from the sickness that many of its critics claimed it to be, but actually an expression of political and moral health. Yet, having said this, I must now finally come to the less moral, actually immoral side of anti-communism. The side that was pathological. The other side, the dark side. The side that makes the question of anti-communism in America so complicated and so vexing to analyze. And that, of course, is McCarthyism. 
given its name by an Appleton native and a man who lies buried beneath a frequently desecrated headstone in St. Mary's Cemetery out on Prospect Street, right here in Appleton. Has anybody been to McCarthy's grave? Okay, a couple of you have. The last time I was there, I think I mentioned this, was when, uh, when Ben Stein was here, and uh, he, asked, uh, he asked to be taken to McCarthy's grave at midnight. Uh, uh, that, was, that was an experience I will not forget for a long time. Joseph Raymond McCarthy, United States Senator from the state of Wisconsin from 1947 to 1957. Now, Joe McCarthy was actually a much smaller phenomenon personally than the historical phenomenon uh, of McCarthyism that he unleashed. He was a rather crude man, shrewd uh, without being intelligent, uh, who latched on to anti-communism uh, as a way to salvage what, what up to 1950 had been a rather undistinguished senatorial uh, career. On February 9th, 1950, which is almost 48 years to the day tomorrow, uh, McCarthy made a speech in Wheeling, West Virginia, in which he charged that 205 communists worked in the State Department with the full knowledge uh, of State Department officials. Well, this, as you might imagine, caused a great firestorm and made McCarthy into a national public figure overnight. Although he never really backed up these charges, uh, or most of the ones that he would make later on, uh, with facts. The Wheeling speech uh, uh, created what we now know as McCarthyism, an atmosphere in which, in order to root out the relatively small number of communists or communist spies in government, the reputation of innocent people who had done nothing except lend their names to political causes also favored by communists were ruined. This is guilt by association. And McCarthy would use, much, uh, use this technique over and over, between 1950 and 1954, to destroy liberals who, while not communists themselves, often found themselves on the same side, perhaps signing the same petitions as communists. You remember in our reading for today, the letter from the Harvard students who were uh, uh, afraid to sign an anti-McCarthy uh, petition because they feared that one communist, one single communist, might also sign that petition, and then they might be called communists. Well, this is a classic example of guilt by association, or fear of guilt by association, as Joe McCarthy practiced it. When someone attacked McCarthy or questioned his methods, McCarthy always had a perfect comeback, given the times. He charged his critic must be a communist, or at least a communist sympathizer, because an attack on a man who opposed communism as deeply uh, and as resolutely as Joe McCarthy himself uh, constituted giving aid and comfort to communists. Now, McCarthyism had three insidious forms in the American workplace. First, it caused many Americans both in government and private industry, to be fired outright for refusing to talk about their past or present political affiliations. And some of these past affiliations, uh, 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 and perhaps dalliances with communism and the Soviet Union, had occurred during World War II, when the Soviet Union was our nominal ally, making their dismissals even more unfair. Second, McCarthyism caused many to be blacklisted. Hollywood is a prime example of this. 
uh, denied work in their chosen field because of suspected communist affiliations. Some people never got their careers back. And finally, third, in a broader sense, McCarthyism, by causing censorship, often self-censorship, uh, of public writing and speech, created a constricted and politically correct climate in America that poisoned the atmosphere of free inquiry and expression that is perhaps our country's best feature. McCarthyism turned friend against friend, co-worker against co-worker, sometimes as in the case of the Rosenberg spy case of, uh, of 1950 that I referred to earlier, uh, uh, Julius Rosenberg and his wife convicted of conspiracy to commit espionage to steal atomic secrets to the Soviet Union. In that case, it turned brother against sister. Ethel uh, Rosenberg, who was uh, the wife of Julius Rosenberg, was sent to the electric chair by the testimony of her own brother. In other words, it's a very, very ugly business. And so little was accomplished. McCarthy, for all his hysteria, never exposed any legitimate threat to American national security. Just a small group of small-time leftists who were really no threat to anyone. Like, for example, an army dentist in New Jersey by the name of Irving Perez, who once belonged to the Communist Party uh, and who received a routine promotion. Uh, uh, McCarthy launched an entire investigation of communists in the army over this ridiculously inconsequential incident in 1954, an investigation that led to McCarthy's downfall after he embarrassed himself on national TV with his bullying and smear tactics during what was known as the Army McCarthy hearings. Even rabidly anti-communist Americans did not believe that, for example, General George Marshall crying out loud, a man who was a World War II hero and the author of the Marshall Plan that I talked about last time, which probably did more to hurt the Soviet Union than any other single American initiative and certainly anything that Joe McCarthy did, uh, was somehow a communist dupe, a communist stooge, which is what McCarthy charged. McCarthy's uh, senatorial colleagues had finally had enough of him and stood up to him in the wake of the Army McCarthy hearings of 1954. The Senate formally condemned him, and the junior senator from Wisconsin faded off into alcoholism and obscurity. But the damage had been done. And while it would not take long for America to recover from Joe McCarthy, he died in 1957, it would take a long time to recover from McCarthyism. Indeed, we see its residue even today from both sides of the ideological aisle in a political culture based on innuendo and character assassination, a sad legacy from a fearful and suspicious time. So, the historical legacy of anti-communism in America is a mixed one. Uh, like most historical impulses, with examples of personal courage and moral cowardice on both sides. Both the critics of and the apologists for anti-communism in the years after World War II are both right and both wrong in the sense that, yes, communism was a problem about which Americans had a legitimate right to be concerned. But no, the destruction of innocent lives and innocent men in the name of the concern with communism was wrong. In an emotional, insecure, polarized time, Americans did not do as good a job of balancing vigilance and fairness 
as they should have. And if these years teach us anything today, it is that we must have the courage and the strength to seek them both. Now, in our next lecture, uh, having talked about angst amid affluence, we will cover the other part of that phrase, affluence, as we discuss the culture and politics of the decade of happy days, the 1950s.